Continuing in our study of Acts, last week we studied how the Apostle Paul handled his call into ministry through the end of his second missionary journey and the beginning of his third missionary journey in Corinth. The message was called, shout it if you remember it. Yeah, it was obviously it was good. Um, <laughs> handling the call. Handling the call. I'm just kidding, y'all. I know, I know y'all listen all the time. Um, but y'all all right? Joking a little bit? All right. Handling the call. Handling the call. How we all have a call to ministry no matter what. Um, and that ministry is not to be separate from the organizational idea of a church. That ministry is simply the avenue of which you accomplish something through. That God has called you to do something and your ministry is how you accomplish that purpose. Maybe the ministry is through something through the organizational compounds of a church. Like the youth ministry or a worship ministry or children's ministry. But maybe your ministry is in the job that you have. The position that you hold. The family that you mother or father. Whatever it is, we all have something to do. We saw that last week the Apostle Paul actually had a full-time job as a tent maker. Um, and that he never used I have a full-time job as an excuse not to minister and um, people who have researched the scriptures and have seen the, the, the patterns of the times have even found that um, what most people did because you know it, it was hot in, in the places of, of, of Asia and Egypt and the, you know I, don't, I know we don't know nothing about being hot in, in the south but um, they would actually work night to morning and they would take a break um, during the day with what he did. So when he preached from 11 to about 4 or 5 o'clock, that was actually during the time that most people weren't working because instead of working in the middle of the day, they were working the cooler parts of the day. Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Um, so so th th this is this was th the times that Paul was preaching was actually in the times of rest. And today we pick up in Acts chapter 19. Um, and if you remember last week in, in, in last week's chapter, Paul was leaving Corinth, and he traveled and, and hit a place in uh, Ephesus, and he started talking to the church in Ephesus. And if you remember, the church in Ephesus said, hey, Paul, would you stay a little longer? And Paul said, well, I've got to go, but God willing, I'll be back. Well, in this chapter, the apostle Paul comes back to the church in Ephesus. And when he comes back, he notices a group of believers and he points them out and starts talking to them. So in Acts 19, verses 1 through 2, it says this. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be somewhat of an embarrassing question if you're in the church and the Apostle Paul comes back to encourage you and the first question he says is, do you, I, I, I see that you love Jesus, I see that you've repented, some translations even interchange believers with disciples. So these were people who were proven to be Jesus lovers. They were proven to be Christians. They were people who knew God. But he says, there's something lacking in you. And he says, have you received the Holy Spirit when you believed in the Messiah? It wasn't his custom to ask this question. 
This is the first time we see this question in Paul's ministry. He doesn't go to every church and says, have you received the Holy Spirit? But for some reason, when he came back to the church in Ephesus and saw this group of believers, that was the question he asked. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Something made Paul ask this question. And the first question I asked myself when I was reading this text was, well, what was lacking in their witness what was lacking in their life, what was lacking in their testimony as a group of disciples that merited this question from the Apostle Paul saying, hey, it doesn't look like you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And another way to maybe ask that question that the Apostle Paul saw is there was something missing when he asked, have you received the Holy Spirit? Another question could be asked, where's the power. And I think in America, what we have seen is that we have churches filled with people. We have tons of people who profess Jesus and profess Christianity. But if you looked at most churches, most people could walk into a church and we could all ask the same question. I know that you believe in Jesus, but where's the power? You talk about healing, but where's the power? Because I've come up and asked for healing about 25 times, and I'm still hurting. I've asked for deliverance about 300 times, and I still need deliverance. I've asked for a word, and I can't get a word. I've asked for knowledge and discernment. and not, Where is the power? Let's, let's shift lanes a little bit. Where's the power? Because this world, if you haven't been paying attention, is falling apart. We've got diseases causing places to close up, and no one's going to the church and asking, where's the power? We're going to government officials, and we're going to, 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 to the medical community, which is fine because the medical community is needed. I can't stand churches who preach against the medical community because God's given them a gift to do certain things. Can someone say amen to that? I mean, let's not preach against that. But I think that there's, I mean, even the author Luke was a physician in, in, in the Bible. But I think that there needs to be a pairing of, instead of the world going to the world, why haven't they gone to the church and said, where, where is the solution? They haven't gone to church leaders and said, what do we do with a virus that we can't fight? You want to know why they haven't gone to the church? Because no one's seeing what? Power. And I think if the Apostle Paul were to come to the church, and this is including relentless, let's just get real, I'm going to put it on the table because I want to call us out of shallowness. I want to go deep. I want to go deeper. I want us to grow in what God has called us to do in this community. If the Apostle Paul was to come to the church today, I think he would probably ask the same question. He would say, have you received the Holy Spirit? Because I don't see much power. Because if you go into Savannah and Pooler and all the areas, is it really changing? Is the church really doing anything? You can go into certain areas of this place, of this county, of this region, and you can pretty much call out what sins are in what area. Methingham. Tell me I'm lying. You can go into an area and you know what's poverty. You know what sins, what the rich are dealing with. 
You, you can pretty much walk into an atmosphere and discern what's going on. You can go into SCAD communities and you know what most people are dealing with. You, you, you know what people are struggling with. And yet nothing is changing. But thank God for riots. Nothing's changing. Where's the power? And at the beginning of this entire series in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is leaving the earth in the ascension, when Jesus is addressing his disciples one final time, when he's leaving, going up in the heavens, when he disappears in the clouds, this is what he says in Acts chapter 1. Just a reminder, in, in three verses, in verses 6, 7, and 8, it says, When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Stop right there. I think this is where we're at a lot. We're getting so sick of the world. We're, we're asking and praying, God, when are you coming back? And we say, I wish Jesus would return. God, when are you coming? It's getting hard. It's getting deep. Sin's running rampant. When are you coming? When are you coming? When are you coming? When are you coming? And then church has become, it don't, y'all, have peace. God's returning. He's going to come. And then we're asking, well, when he's coming? When is he coming? Well, look what Jesus responds with in verse 7. In verse 7, he says this. He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They are not for you to know. So let me just save you some time. Stop trying to figure it out. God says it's not for you. So stop wasting time trying to figure out something that's not for you to figure out. And then he follows it up with verse 8. But you will receive power. He says, I know that it's going to get so tough that it's going to be easy to focus on when will it end. But let me assure you that in the midst of all this toughness, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So what is the evidence of power? The Holy Spirit. And what did Paul ask? He didn't say, he didn't ask, there's no power. What does he ask? He says, have you received the Holy Spirit? Which means what did he see nothing of? He didn't see any power. You'll be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. He says, you're going to receive power to change this world. And he looks at this group of believers and says, have you received the Holy Spirit? What merited that question? He didn't see power. So if you have truly received the Holy Spirit, there should be some evidence of a power In your life, that is not by your own strength, not by your own self, but only credited to something supernatural that is is of God. Paul says, I don't see any power and y'all have, y'all got it. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And that word received, I think, is one of the most misinterpreted words in theological schools and theological discussions. Because one of the biggest Uh, arguments in the church is do you get the Holy Spirit when you get saved or do you get it in a separate occasion? The word received there is not talking about did, did you receive it in a separate means. It's saying when you got saved, did you receive what came into you 
or are you totally ignorant of what you have? And judging by your lack of power, I'm asking you, do you receive the fact that you receive something? Do you receive the fact that you got something when you believe? Because it doesn't look like by your lifestyle and by your lack of power that you're not hearing much conviction by what you received because you haven't made any changes. Your lifestyle looks the same. You claim to be reborn, but you look just as dirty before you said, I love you, Jesus. There's nothing about you that's changing. There's nothing about you that is submitting. There's no power in your life. Did you, do you understand what you received? Do you receive what you received? Are y'all following me? Did, do you understand what you got the moment you said, Jesus, I've received you? Let me prove it to you in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the what? Holy Spirit, who lives in you and was given... There's power. <laughs> That's just my hand just... <laughs> Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. Have you truly received that teaching and truth and submitted to the leading of the Holy Spirit? Look at what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you repent and turn to Jesus and be baptized in his name, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But have you received what you received? See, when you repent and you're baptized in the name of Jesus, you receive it, but did you receive the thing that you received or do you reject its existence in every form and fashion and decision you make or do you still rely on yourself and do you reject his voice? Scripture tells us so much about the Holy Spirit. Uh, these are not up on the screen, but in Romans 8.26, it describes the Holy Spirit as the one who helps us in our weakness. So when you find yourself weak, if you're still struggling, I have to ask you, have you received the fact that you have something in you that helps you when you're weak? Or are you still depending on yourself and you're wondering why you're still failing? And then someone looks at you and says, where's the power, Christian? I thought you pushed through. I thought you rose above. I thought Jesus was stronger than what you're dealing with. And then in the same passage, it says that Holy Spirit that you received, it intercedes on your behalf with what you don't know how to say. In other words, the Holy Spirit that you received, it prays on your behalf when you don't know how to pray. And you know what we do as people? When we don't know how to pray into a situation, we cry saying, help me pray. I don't know how to pray. Do you receive the fact that you have a helper living inside of you that prays when you don't know how? Or are you relying on your words as if they're more powerful than God's? Do you receive the fact that there is power in you that is waiting to be released? What is the point of the gift of praying in tongues? But the word says we have to speak into existence things. Do you realize that the point of the gift of tongues is not to prove people anything? The point of the gift of tongues is for you to speak things that you do not know how to say and the Spirit reveals it on your behalf so you pray things out loud that you don't know what you need to pray for? 
That's the point. It's not to show out with people and yada, 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 yada in church. That's not the point of it. Am I wrong? No, I'm not. There's power. But do you receive that? Galatians 5.22 says there's evidence of, of the Holy Spirit. If you, if you are being led by the Holy Spirit, you'll have the evidence of a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then it says there is no law against those things. You know what that means? Despite your conditions, if you're being led under the power of the Holy Spirit, nothing can prevent you from having all of it. Well, I just don't have self-control because you don't know what I've been through. There is no law against you possessing self-control if you will be led by the power of the Holy Spirit, but have you received the fact that it's in you? Well, I'm just not a patient person. There is no law against your ability to possess patience. Stop giving your personality more power than being reborn into God's personality that he saw you as before this world messed you up. Well, Kyle, I'm just not gentle. That's not how I'm made up. No, no, no. That is how you were made up, but you got messed up by your circumstances. You got messed up by how you were raised. You got messed up by the situations you came into. You got messed up by all these different factors that you came up against in your life. But there is no law. If you would submit to God, you can get back to that. And he says, I don't care how many times you've messed up. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how hateful you've been. There is no law. If you would submit to me, the power in what you've received can transform your entire personality traits. But it's not when will God do it. It's when will you submit and receive what you have received. That's right. Isaiah 11, 2 speaks of the, the Holy Spirit being a spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge. John 14, 15 through 17 speaks of the Holy Spirit being a spirit of truth. John 16, 7 through 8 refers to the Holy Spirit being a helper and bringing conviction. Yet for some reason we get into the same pattern of sin and we never get convicted about the sin because you have truly not received the fact that you've received something to say that, that tells you no. And instead of throwing that thing away, we dance around it and say, despite what God says, I'm going to listen to what my wants are and what my desires are. And what our culture has done is we've tried to re rewrite a holy scripture to fit our preferences. You don't get to do that. And we define love as we accept all. That's not love. Love is I accept you enough to bear with your junk in your restoration. Not I accept you and I don't want you to ever change. True love is what Jesus did. I'm going to take you as you are and my entire being is meant to change you back to how I saw you before you got into all this sin. I'm going to restore you and I'm going to treat you as if you were already restored. Not I'm okay with you being in a lifestyle of sin and I'm going to rewrite the Bible to merit your sin. 
And there are many spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us for the equipping of the saints and for the working of ministry. There's prophecy, serving, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, mercy, miracles, tongues, interpretation of tongues, healing, and more. And you know what 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says? It says, it is the one and only Holy Spirit who distributes these gifts. Not a man of God. Not a person. It's the Holy Spirit that, that does it. Does he use people to put it into fruition and action? Of course. But it's not the people that decide. It is the Holy. He alone decides which gift each person should have. It's all attributed to God, the Holy Spirit. And Paul, knowing that all of that is the Holy Spirit, looks at these believers and he says, have, you, have any of you received what you received? And their response is, no, we haven't even heard of such a thing. No one taught them about it. No one told them a thing about it. And today, we've got a lot of believers who, I bet if Paul would come in and he said, have any of you received what you received, we'd be like, either we know we haven't heard or no, we, 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 we just haven't accepted it. Or maybe a moment of conviction will come and we realize we truly haven't loved our Savior enough to submit to what's inside of us because we love ourselves too much to love him more. And, and that, that is the punch in the face for the morning. Who do you love more, you or him? Because if you truly loved him more, all the stuff that you keep going into, you put at his feet. And the reason to say that is not to beat you up because the truth will set you free. So I can either not say it and leave you bound up or I can put it out there in the most loving form possible to say, if you find that you're in the same pattern over and over, here's the reason. So how, how do you get free from it? Not God deliver me. It's I walk into freedom by applying truth into all areas by receiving what I've already received. Just making sense? Look at the next two verses when he asks these people, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Or have you received the Holy Spirit? Acts 19, 3 through 4. Then what baptism did you experience? I think it's kind of funny. <laughs> Have you, have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you, have you, what, have you, what have you been baptized in? And they replied, the baptism of John. Paul said, well, John's baptism called for repentance from sin. But John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. It's not up there, but I want to reread a scripture I just read about what Peter said. Peter said, repent of your sins and turn to God and believe in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and turn to God. And Paul just makes a, distinguish, a, a, a distinguishing characteristic about John's baptism and Jesus. He says... Y'all got the repenting correct. But the point of repenting is not repenting. The point of repentance is to give you the ability to turn to God 
and be worthy to sit at his table. Repent and turn. And see, what we've done in the church is all we do is preach, repent and be forgiven of your sins. So what, what, we, what we do at church is we repent and say, for God, would you forgive me of what I did Friday night? And then you ask for that same forgiveness 352 weeks of the year, if you know what I'm saying. You know, every Sunday at church or every, every Saturday, God, would you just, you know, it becomes confession. God, forgive me what I did. Oh, forgive me again. Oh, it, it, repentance has turned into let me admit what I did so I feel better about being a Christian. And then when I do it again, I'm going to repent again. What's the point? What's, what, is, what, is, what are they missing? They're repenting, but he says repent and turn to a relationship with Jesus. He says where well, y'all missed it, y'all got the repenting right. Y'all have asked for forgiveness, but every time you repent, you turn back to yourself and you wonder why you're in the same pattern of repentance. He says, repent and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus, not be baptized in the name of your repentance. And when you are baptized in the name of Jesus, what is baptism? Total immersion. When you are immersed, when you are fully covered in a relationship with God, because you, what does repentance mean? To turn away from. So when you're dealing with an issue of sin A, you say, I'm going to turn away from the sin. If you don't go to Jesus, you end up turning right back into it. And he's saying, repent, turn to God, and when you turn into this relationship with Jesus, you will receive what you've already received and be led to a different place. And when you're led to a different place by the leading of God, you'll start seeing some power in your life. You'll start seeing some doors open that you can never push open by your own merit. Well, I can't get out of my poverty. I can't get past this job. Maybe because you're not strong enough to open the door to your next season and the way you open the door to your next season is into this relationship with Jesus so that the power of God will bring you into your next place. Instead of you trying to make it happen yourself through, I repent, oh, I repent, oh, I repent. No, repent and relationship. So a, amen. These disciples rested in the need for repentance, but they truly had not realized, oh, we don't need just repentance. We actually need the Messiah. We actually need God. We actually need him. Well, verse 5 through 7, as soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues, and they prophesied. This is the funny verse to me. Verse 7. There were about 12 men in all. This whole chapter was about 12 dudes. And the church at Ephesus. You know, when you're first reading this, you're thinking Paul's addressing the whole church. But he's talking about 12, 12 people out of the entire church of Ephesus. And what we're about to read in the rest of this chapter is when these got when there's a revelation of what of what this is, 
the reasons changed. And we're spending so much time in church trying to grow congregations when the real growth is when we all can honestly answer the question of if the Apostle Paul came in here, he wouldn't have to ask, where's the power? We will become people who truly walk in the leading of the Holy Spirit because we haven't just repented. We have turned to a life of a relationship with Jesus, and we have received what we received in that baptism of relationship, the Holy Spirit. And there's power. I wonder, have you turned to Jesus, or are you just sitting in repentance? Are you just sitting at the cross, or have you moved on from the cross? People ask sometimes, why don't you have a cross on stage? I don't really, to, to be honest with you, I, I don't want to worship the murdering device. You move on from the cross. It was a tool to be used, not a place to stay. I don't remember Jesus rising from the grave and going back to it. Why would he? (laughs) Okay, that might have been too offensive. (laughs) God always wants us to go deeper. We talk about scripture that says things like, He's a never-ending wellspring of life, uh, uh, the, the living water. We sing songs like, like Jesus is the cup that won't run dry, but we sip from the cup of Jesus as if the water was going to run out when we should be chugging this, the cup of God like some of y'all be chugging. Yeah. Are, are y'all, why are we sipping at the cup? He says, y'all, y'all taking little sips from me. Like, God, forgive me. That's the starting point. He wants life. He wants your identity. He wants all of you. He wants you to talk different, speak different, live different, look different. If you read through the stories, many many of the people in the scriptures, when they came into a life of God, it says their countenance changed. When was the last time you came to someone who knew you, and because you've been diving into a relationship, they look at you and said, there's something different about you. Now, some of you have been asked that question, but it ain't the right question because there's something different about you for the wrong reasons. But what are people seeing? Are they seeing the power of God change you from the inside out? What, what are they seeing? Continuing on in the scripture, it says in verses 8 through 10, then Paul went to the synagogue. I hope y'all ain't bored. Then Paul went to the synagogue, and he preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. So Paul left the synagogue, took the believers with him, then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. He spent two years preaching. People were rising up against him. And rejecting the message. So he didn't say, forget the place. He spent two years with the ones who received him and raised them up so that when he left, they could keep spreading the word. And in the midst of all this, in the midst of the two years, in the midst of staying there, we're about to read about some power that was manifested in Paul's ministry. And before we do, I want to read the scripture again. 
1 Corinthians 12, 11. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes the gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. He alone decides. You don't get to decide which gift you get. And some people say, well, 1 Corinthians 12, 31 says, earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. But that doesn't mean you get to deem what's most helpful in a moment. Because sometimes in a moment we think the most helpful gift is I need a word. But if his ways are higher than your ways and thoughts are higher than your thoughts, what if the most helpful gift in a moment is mercy, but because you're trying to deem yourself more worthy of God, you look at the gift that is most publicly displayed. So you say this person needs a word when really all the person needs is the greatest gift of all, love. But we say, I need this gift, and God says, well, I decide what gift you have. All I want you to do is desire what's most helpful. I need a, I need a word of knowledge. No, you don't. You need to desire what's, what's, what's most helpful. I need discernment. No, you don't. You need to desire what's most helpful. Stop telling God what gift you need and start saying, God, what's most helpful. So this is where Paul's at. He's in a moment where everyone's rejecting his message except for a group of believers in the schools. And God decides to give him a gift that's most helpful. Look at verse 11. God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. God gave. Paul didn't come up with it. Paul didn't ask for unusual. God, Paul didn't say, hey, People are coming against me. I need you to do something unusual to display your power. No, 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 no. So God decided to give him the power to do unusual things. And then it describes the unusual miracles in verse 12. It says, when handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. Now let me just pause here and say something. There's a reason that these miracles were called unusual. You know what the word unusual means? They were not usual. And what have believers done? Let's make one scripture in the Bible usual. You turn on Christian networks on TV, and at some point you're going to find a handkerchief that's been put in anointing oil and said if you buy this for $29.99 and you put it on your bruise, it's going to be healed. Or if you get this special anointed cloth from the, the, the ruins of Jerusalem, you're going to be free of cancer. The reason Paul got this unusual thing, because it was unusual for a specific moment, for a specific group. Now, I'm not saying God can't do it again. But what we tend to do is we try to make all the supernatural, unusual stuff usual. And we try to imitate what God has done before to try to display power because truthfully, we can't figure out where the power came from. So when we see power displayed, we try to imitate it. And I go back to me harping on revivals. And I'm sorry for doing it because I, I, am, I am searching for a revival in the church. Most revivals these days all start the same way. Let's just start meeting every night. 
Let's just start having worship every night. Let's, let's just start doing the same thing. Now, I'm not saying it don't work. But why are we, why are we not simply just saying, God, what do you want? Why are we simply not just seeking the face of God together and not putting a label on what seeking looks like? Why is it that we are seeking God in the form of a corporate setting like this when maybe it should just be, hey, let's come together, break bread, talk, and let God rest on us? Why can't revival start and people just meeting in homes? Why does it have to be, let's get to the worship center? And let's set some mood music. And let's just walk around with our head down. And, oh, God. Why have we made that the usual form of seek? I'm not speaking against that. That's how some people seek. But it's not to be made the standard. Am I making sense? So, Something unusual happens, and guess what people do in the next couple verses? They start imitating it, just like we do today. They start seeing Paul, in the name of Jesus, have handkerchiefs and, and, and walk around, and demons are being expelled. And in verse 13 and 14, it says, A group of Jews was traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits, and they tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a leading priest, were doing this. Let me tell you what's going on. At this time, there, was, there, were, a group, there were groups of Jewish exorcists trying to cast out demons, and they did it through superstition and ceremonies. And here, a group of Jews took notice. Have y'all seen this dude, Paul? We've seen something unusual happen through him, and we've seen something in him power and what did they see he's been saying this thing in the name of Jesus so they so and Christians do it today well if we would just say in the name of Jesus that's all we need well let me just break the mold in the name of Jesus doesn't need to be a spell or a charm and that's exactly what we've made it. Because how dare you say in the name of Jesus when nothing about your life looks like in the name of Jesus. And you think it's going to work. And the moment something comes against you and you have no relationship with him, you some, a relationship comes against you or, or something from your past comes against you or you lose your job or a sickness comes, you've got no relationship with God. You've got no seeking with the Father. You've got no prayer time. You don't worship anywhere but Saturdays and Sundays are relentless. And the moment something comes, you say in the name of Jesus, and then nothing happens and what question do you ask you say where's the power because in the name of Jesus cannot work if you're merely imitating it just because you proclaim his name does not mean a thing they were going around in the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus nothing was working and watch what happens in verse 15 
One time they tried it, and an evil spirit replied, that, that would suck. <laughs> you start talking to a demon, and he's like, hey. <laughs> the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who you be? And then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. Talk about a bad day. (laughs) Can you imagine being a pastor with no relationship with God and you walk into a house and they say, hey, can you expel a demon and you walk out naked? (laughs) Had a bad day. Um, But if if y'all didn't get that song reference, y'all too young. But because you just cannot imitate it. You want to know why? The demon replied, because there was no weight of authority behind in the name of Jesus. You cannot just say that and have no weight behind it. Let me just remind you of something. Satan, whose name was Lucifer, knows God very well. That's why the only tool Satan has is deception. He's trying to deceive you into believing something that he knows is actually not true. He knows God. He saw God. He, he led worship in heaven for God. Why do you think worldly music sounds so much better than Christian music? Because the author of it was made to create it. Never thought of that, have you? He knew God. The demons were fall, are fallen angels. They know God. So when someone speaks and they do not have a weight of authority, they know very well who is imitating and who's real. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone a new life has begun. If you're going to use in the name of Jesus, does the enemy see, when the enemy sees you, do they see old life or the new one? The new one with authority. The new one that has received what you receive. The new one that has power. Because you haven't just repented. You built a relationship with God. You've received the fact that you have the Holy Spirit. You're being led by the conviction. You're walking into the new things. You're, you're, being, you're being gifted with new things. And before you know it, just like Paul and Silas at midnight... When you release a praise, strongholds start breaking, chains start falling, and you're no longer having to pray, God, deliver me, because you're walking in a power that unleashes something that's already been delivered. You ever notice we just waste time praying for the wrong things? God set me free. He's already set you free. God set me free from this pattern of sin. He's already done that. You just haven't received the fact that you have something in you that leads the way to walk it out. And that is the power that so many of us have not received. And to finish up this whole chapter, 17 through 22, the story of what happened spread quickly. I imagine it would. People saying in the name of Jesus, go in to cast out a demon, they walk out naked and beaten up. I imagine that would make national news. The story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city. The name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. 
It's incredible. The demon won a battle in a house, but the demons of the region lost because in the seemingly winning of one small battle with someone imitating God, the name of Jesus spread. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. Notice, it wasn't the ones who became believers confessed their practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread widely had a powerful effect. Afterward, Paul felt compelled by the Spirit to go over to Macedonia and Achaia before going to Jerusalem. And after that, he said, I must go on to Rome. He sent his two assistants, Timothy and Erastus, ahead to Macedonia while he stayed a while longer in the province of Asia. Look what happened. When they saw this, the people who believe realized something. We've got too much mixed in with our belief in God. And all the people in Ephesus who either believed in God or believed in other things, they said, you know what? We're either all in with this God thing or not. So all the stuff that they've been holding on to that we all still have, and you know, you know, you know we've, some of us or all of us still got it. We still got the stuff that we hold on to that even though we claim Jesus, we hold on to the stuff that's not of him. You know what they did with it? They got it all together and they said, we're going to throw it in the fire. And it's interesting that, I didn't say this last night, but it's interesting that the scriptures point out that the worth of what they threw in the fire was several million dollars. What's worth more to you? The relationship with him or the relationship with the thing that you've invested in? Is he worth it? Where's the power in your life? You claim to be someone who loves God? I want to encourage you today. Take a personal inventory. What have you mixed in? Where's your identity? Have you stopped at repentance? Or have you developed relationship? Have you received the fact that you have the Holy Spirit and that he's trying to talk to you? He's trying to tell you what to let go of. He's trying to tell you what to walk into. He's trying to tell you who to serve, where to serve, when to serve. He's trying to tell you what's next. He's trying to tell you what to walk away from, what to walk into. He's trying to tell you what friends you're supposed to separate from, what family you're supposed to separate from. What are you listening to? See, we forget about the scripture when Jesus says, are you willing to leave everyone from me, including your closest family members? Are you willing? That's not, I'm, he's not saying that's plan A, but he's saying, are you willing? Are you willing to give up everything for me? And if you are willing to do that, if you're willing to repent and turn to him and build relationship and receive the fact that you've received the Holy Spirit, when someone looks at you, they're not going to ask, where's the power? They're going to see it in the testimony of your life. And that's how this whole area is going to change. Amen.